The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? A hundred years ago, the Chinese Communist Party was founded in Beijing. Among the founding members was a young intellectual by the name of Mao Zedong. The party would then go on to change China's history over the 20th century. A hundred years on, the CCP's success is probably more than any of those young intellectuals could have imagined in that summer of 1921. But is it still the same party? What does membership mean these days? And is anyone even communist in the Chinese Communist Party? In the West, we see the CCP as a monolithic whole, an authoritarian evil mass. But what are the breakdowns in views and opinions and the changes over time that the party undergoes that we see very little from the outside? I'm joined by two leading experts in the field. Victor Shi is an associate professor at the University of California, San Diego, whose research specialises in Chinese Communist Party factions. And I'm also joined by Professor Kerry Brown, the director of the Lao China Institute at King's College London and the author of numerous books on the Chinese Communist Party and China itself. Welcome both. Victor, to start with, can I ask you to explain how, as an average Chinese person, you might come across the party in your everyday life? So as we all know, all the apartment buildings in China and also rural villages, they have a residential committee in the urban side and a village uh, level committee in, you know, in the rural side. Those organizations, even though most of what they do is very innocuous, you know, obviously just posting posters about public health and, you know, obviously during the pandemic, they did a great deal in enforcing the quarantine. They, they are ultimately, you know, obviously run by the Chinese Communist Party, especially in the village side. I know they have party secretaries, uh, also in the urban residential committees, they have party secretaries. And so that's probably the most common day-to-day encounters between the party and ordinary Chinese people. And then the other side, of course, now uh, with a heavy engagement on social media, uh, obviously the Chinese Communist Party send their own censors to all the major internet companies in China to enforce uh, censorship in, in these companies. And so that, of course, also is a daily encounter of ordinary Chinese uh, to the Chinese Communist Party. And Kerry, one thing that I've been looking at a little bit is is the relationship of the party to students, especially elite students in Tsinghua and Beida, you know, the Oxbridge of China. A lot of these students join the party while they're at university. Can you explain why they do that? Well, I mean, in the past, I think in the 1990s when I was living in China, it wasn't a hugely popular thing to join the party. But I think in more recent years, as I understand this one statistic I saw that was I think 20 million people apply to join a year and about 1 million get in. And uh, I think it's because it's a network. I mean, of course, if you want to get things done, if you want to actually have some sort of facilitation of your life, even if it's, you know, you're involved in private business or non-state business, 
having a kind of party network is, is really useful. I mean, the Communist Party of China, in effect, is a kind of network. I mean, it's a not particularly diverse network in a weird way. As I understand, it's uh, only, you know, 25% women, 75% men. So the patriarchy is strong in this political realm. It's changed radically from, you know, the 60s when it was mostly not particularly well-educated, mostly people from rural areas. And now it's very professional. It's become the ultimate sort of meritocratic entity. And that's a very useful sort of network to have and to belong to. Uh, you know, it's the ultimate membership society. So practically it has attraction and that's got nothing to do with its ideology. That's almost like the entrance charge, but it's not really an ideological membership uh, society. I would not call it meritocratic, though, because if you exclude women from its higher ranks, I mean, the, the ratios get so terrible the higher up you go. In the Politburo, there's now only just one woman all the time. Uh, in the Central Committee, there's less than 5% women. Uh, that's what we have in our database. And this is the 21st century, and women are actually more educated on average in China than men, you know, younger women. And they're not getting into higher ranks in the Chinese Communist Party. And I think at the very lowest level, it's like, you know, sort of 40, 60, still not great. But the higher up you go, the worse it is. So I wouldn't call it meritocratic. I mean, for men, there is some element of, you know, if you go to Tsinghua as a man, then your chance of being recruited in the Chinese Communist Party is very high. But that's not meritocracy when you, you know, sort of exclude or discriminate against half of China's population. Oh, no, I mean, I think, I don't mean that it is meritocratic. I think that it sees itself as meritocratic. I mean, it's a different thing. Sure. So I totally accept sure. those points. I mean, actually, there's a lot of people it excludes in terms of diversity. You know, the Politburo is, I mean, how much ethnic diversity does it have? I mean, very, very little. But I think it sees itself as meritocratic and probably slightly technocratic too. Kerry, you say that ideology is not a huge part of why someone would join the party, at least at that stage. Can you explain, maybe just give some context for why it's not a big part? In the West, we see the CCP as such a hugely ideological and, dare I say, evil entity that I think the notion of why ordinary Chinese people smart Chinese students who are cosmopolitan probably have gone around, travelled around, around middle class, you know, have a smartphone in their pocket. Other than the network, why don't they see the ideology of the CCP as being off-putting? Why is it, is it, is it almost normalised? I'm sure Victor's going to put me right on this because ideology is a total battleground everywhere. I mean, if you mean, <laughs> if you, if you mean by ideology, a set of practices and uh, sort of verbalised beliefs that give some sense of cohesion. So it's a functional thing. Uh, rather than going into deeper issues of whether people actually believe what these things are, then I think ideology for the elite. So, I mean, again, Victor will put me right here, but really the elite in China is, isn't huge, right? I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, 300, 350 members of the Central Committee, full and alternate members, and, you know, kind of quite a small elite for a huge, huge country. But I think for this elite, it's a common language. I think it's a bit like medieval Latin for the Catholic Church in the medieval period. Now, most people did not uh, have a clue what, uh, you know, religious services involved when they went to them in the Middle Middle Ages, but the priesthood did because, you know, Latin was an international language. And I think in China, uh, ideology, Marxism, Leninism with Chinese characteristics is a kind of common language for a group where if there is disagreement, it can be pretty deadly. And I think it has that pragmatic use 
But I think in terms of people's daily life, and again, Victor will put me right here, but I think the last time anyone really believed this stuff fervently was the culture revolution. And we saw how that went. So I don't think they really want people fired up with belief. They just want, I think what Deng Xiaoping said, you know, like a kind of, you know, practical approach, but not, not too much book learning on this. Victor? Yeah, no, I agree. I completely, no, I'm, I'm not gonna, I don't dare to uh, put, put anything right. <laughs> no, 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 I completely agree with this. It is a shared set of practices. And in a way, that's how the party sort of maintains coherence uh, among its members. You know, all these study sessions, you know, we, we all have friends who complain endlessly about these study sessions. But the point is not to actually believe in the content of the study sessions. The point is so that all the party members can see all the other party members obeying this decree that says you must study, you know, the latest Xi Jinping thoughts or whatever. And that actually in itself will, will enforce the power of the party because everyone can see everyone else doing the same thing. Uh, so I completely agree with that. I mean, one, one kind of contradiction I do see between the ideology and reality in China and reality in the Chinese Communist Party is that the, the party always claims that it represents the vast majority of the population in China. Uh, in reality, that is not the case. Like if you look at the membership of the party, as we began to discuss already, it excludes, well, not really excludes, but like discriminates against women, discriminates against ethnic minorities. And actually, if you look at the geographical dispersion of party membership, it tends to cluster in Northern China and the party uh, membership density in southern part of China is actually a lot less dense than in northern China. Uh, so really, you know, when when we talk about the party and the party's interests, you're really talking about the interests of urban, highly educated Han male, you know, who are primarily party members. And that is the interest that's really represented in the Chinese Communist Party. If you're not urban, if you're a migrant worker, if you're a woman, if you're ethnic minority, if you're from Hong Kong, Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if you add all those other populations together, I mean, it's something like 70, 75 percent of China's population. They are a lot less represented by the party, I would say. Victor, I see that, um, you know, in, in China, and it's still certainly a patriarchal society, despite what Chairman Mao arguably tried to do. I see that men can be on top. And I, I understand why urban people are more privileged. But why the north south divide? Where does that come from? Because people in the south are wealthy, there are men in the south too, and they're educated. So where's that come about? Uh, so uh, another person you need to talk to is uh, Daniel Koss uh, at Harvard University. So he wrote a excellent, excellent book about that. It's all has to do with revolutionary history. Basically, the KMT uh, in the 1930s did a very good job purging all the communists from southern China. Um, I mean, that's why the Long March, I mean, I wouldn't say good job, but like a thorough job. Uh, you know. <laughs> Effective. I, I, I don't want to impose any normative uh, judgment on that. But let's say a thorough job purging uh, Chinese communists. And I have to say, you know, they committed a lot of human rights atrocities in the course of doing so, you know, just massacring thousands of people uh, in Jiangxi and in uh, Western Fujian. So because of this process, there were just were not a lot of communists left, uh, even in 1949. So you, you you had obviously when the PLA took over all of China, communists occupied all the higher level positions. But in society, there were not so many communists the way that in Hebei province, which had 
a communist base area throughout the entire Japanese occupation. So, so the statistical results kind of weird. It's like places that were occupied by Japan for the longest had a much higher density of Chinese Communist Party members, and the reason was because the Japanese didn't have enough, enough troops to occupy all the villages, so they just left the villages alone uh, for the most part, which allowed the communists. To form base areas in these areas, and then allow for the higher density of party membership in Hebei, in Shanxi, and in Henan. Well, isn't that the premise of that excellent film, Devils on the Doorstep, which is basically, you know, what two Chinese peasants do when they're given a Japanese prisoner of war, and they just have no idea what to do with him in northern China. Kerry, going back to your analogy of the medieval priesthood, what about the priests themselves? You know, the people who are in the Politburo, the elite uh, CCP members. What do they believe? Well, I mean, they, they believe what they have to. I mean, I guess there's only one person in China that probably does believe in Marxism and Leninism with, you know, kind of Chinese characteristics purely, and that's Xi Jinping, because he's the only person that has to. A bit like you'd say that the only person that has to believe in pure Catholic dogma is 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 the Pope. <laughs> and And indeed, there's even almost like a sort of papal infallibility, you know, clause now. I mean, Xi Jinping has this sort of infallibility because he has to. It seems to me, if you're a practicing politician in China, whatever that means, because I, I'm still not clear what a politician is in China. You, you know, politicians in America and Europe are people who come from diverse backgrounds who take a position sometime in their lives on the left or the right or the middle, and you know that kind of dictates a lot of the time what they do with the rest of their careers. Whereas, of course, that choice in China is that there's only one choice. Well, I mean, there's the choice to be a member of the party or not the party. And you know, if you want to be politically active, you kind of have to be a member of the party, or you're going to have a tough life. So I think for you know these sort of people that do join the party, what are the incentives to think deeply and profoundly about their belief system? Because you have a very high you know kind of likelihood that you might start seeing some of it as being invalid or heaven forbid wrong. So I don't think it's a kind of system that rewards introspection. I never got a sense when I was talking to officials. Over the last sort of twenty years, as a diplomat or as an academic, that this was a deeply self-reflective kind of belief system. In fact, in the kind of nineteen eighties, Deng Xiaoping, as I said again, you know, kind of these very big comments about look, we're not into kind of book learning and we're into the practicality of this system because it works, and it works because people don't argue about the detail, right? They just do things, and you know, I think that is still the case, strangely. And I think the thing that's reinforced it probably is the rewards of having free thinking on a kind of European or American style, where the interpretation certainly in China under Xi Jinping is this has led to, you know, what we saw in America in early January or the kind of disarray in Europe over the last few years. So this isn't an attractive advert. I mean, that might be wrong, but I think that's their interpretation of that. I mean, Victor, this belief in communism, you'd think happened at one point in the party's history for its name. Is communism any instruction for us in the West to understand the party at all these days? I think it is. And I completely agree with what Kerry just said, is that, you know, there's no incentives for, you know, uh, reflection or debate about communist ideology anymore. I think at earlier points in the party's history, there were periods when, you know, the ideology was debated, you know, the most famous case obviously being the third plenum of the 11th Central Committee, 
when uh, Hua Guofeng and Deng Xiaoping engaged in this kind of debate on, you know, what Maoism, what Marxism meant. These days, so I would say that, you know, throughout the history of Marxism, I, you know, bearing in mind that I'm not a Marxism scholar, but, but because I study the Chinese Communist Party, I've had to sort of bone up a little bit on, on the history of Marxism. But, but the, my understanding in, is that in the history of Marxism, there's always been this tension between the economic part of Marxism, which focuses on productivity gains, and the liberation part of Marxism, which, you know, is about human liberation. And the, the problem with the contemporary Chinese commerce ideology is that it focuses only on the productivity gain part. And, and you see a lot of the policies like the 14 five-year plan. It's all about unleashing productivity, increasing productivity. I mean, in fact, you know, for the first time, I think in a while, I, I actually see a productivity gain target that's even more important than the growth target, which is pretty interesting. But the end goal of Marxism is human liberation, you know, is to provide the, the material uh, foundation for people so that they can have the freedom to do things that they want to do. And that is one aspect that has been almost completely neglected by the party. I mean, you know, there's some like anti-poverty and, and uh, Li Keqiang said that, oh, for the first time, maybe you can reimburse your medical expenses everywhere in China now. That would be huge. You know, I think that would be a big milestone if, if they were to do that. But this comes after China has, you know, hosted the Olympics and, you know, sent uh, people to the moon and built high speed railroad and all this other stuff. That should have been the first thing that China did as it got wealthier was to provide basic medical services and education and all these welfare services to people if one were to emphasize the human liberation and welfare aspect of Marxism. I mean, that reminds me of that incredible moment a few years ago, I think, when one of these groups of Beijing students formed a Marxist union to protect southern factory workers who wanted to unionize. And then they got, well, they got completely shut down by the government, to say the least, to show how far away the modern party is from Marxism. Kerry, if not Marxism, what about Chinese nationalism? How much does that drive Xi Jinping and his people? By which I mean the cadres. No, I mean, I think the Communist Party has always been nationalistic. I think Clement Attlee, the British politician, said after the war, you know, you scratch a communist and you'll find a nationalist underneath. And I mean, that's true in the USSR. And I mean, look at North Korea, you, you know. So, I mean, I think um, the, the sort of thing that Marxism probably gave China, I mean, if you think Marx's direct writings about China, uh, I mean, he wrote a few very brief essays in the, I think, the 1850s, late 1850s, 1860s for his only paying employment at that time, which was, you know, articles in the New York, I think it was the New York Review or something, a kind of defunct paper now. And most of the way that sort of China figured in his life was in order to beat up the British Empire. You know, I mean, he was interested in, you know, why was it that the British were kind of doing the things they were doing in the Second Opium War? And he was, you know, really critical about that whole uh, exercise as, as indeed were some of the politicians in Britain. So it was a sort of strange alignment. But directly about China, of course, he wrote very little at all. I mean, he kind of regarded it, I think, as very, very marginal. And I think, um, to, to be honest, it's probably more about the model of the Russian Revolution, you know, from 1917, and uh, the ways that that gave a sort of set of ideas that seemed to be something that could work for China. 
and how that was kind of adopted. But as we know from the amazing work of Galois, the late Galois, I mean, it kind of came in a very sort of, you know, kind of indirect way through cadres that had been trained in Moscow. And Mao Zedong obviously uh, managed to deal with those pretty effectively when they came back with their big new news and, you know, beat them, basically get rid of them over the next 10 years, bit by bit. And I suppose all that was left was really this useful tool to kind of really, you know, analyze class struggle, power structures, basically. I think that's what really appealed to Mao. You know, this was a really you know useful thing for power structures in China um, to understand them. And, you know, the, the commitment in his work from the earliest sort of writings he did was to, you know, this vision of a great, powerful, strong country. And of course, now the only thing that's been added to that is a sort of, you know, super rich country. But the vision is the same, you know, and I think it's been quite consistent, that nationalism. It's never really gone away. And mm. um, Victor, I'm getting a picture of that the party is uh, technocrats, they're bureaucratic, they, they have a goal and they want to get there. But is there argument within the party about how to get there? You know, if, if, if your goal is a powerful, rich country, there are many different ways to achieve that. Do you do it through trade liberalisation? Do you do it through investment liberalisation? Or do you do it through this kind of mixed economy we've seen so far? Are there arguments and debates within the party about the best way to do that? And if not at the moment, were there ever? Yeah, so there's always been economic arguments or arguments about economic policies so I wrote a paper on China and artificial intelligence. And basically what I found was that before 2017, the state council was more or less running the artificial intelligence related policies in China. And, and they had a more sort of open model where they would invite even some of the foreign companies to take market shares uh, in artificial intelligence in China. So part of that was because of U.S. action, you know, as as the relationship between the U.S. and China became more tense. One day, Xi Jinping woke up, you know, after listening to a lecture by a bunch of artificial intelligence experts and say, no, I have to be in charge of this. So then the party started intervening and, and the party opted for a model where it shut out uh, all the foreign firms, in effect, shut out all the foreign firms, you know, all these sort of very onerous requirements and so on and so forth. So that only domestic firms and increasingly domestic firms that were, you know, very tightly controlled by the party could get into artificial intelligence. This is the other kind of debate is on governing models and under Hu Jintao and Kerry probably knows more about this than me. There was a real debate about, at least at, especially at the lower level, how China would be governed. And, and there were experiments with county level elections direct elections of county level leaders that Hu Jintao and people in his group wanted to experiment with. And had we had a sort of a more liberal leadership in China, um, you know, maybe some of Hu Jintao's people in charge of the party, we might have seen larger scale experimentation on that front. So certainly, I mean, I think these things have been contested. Now is, you know, the contestation has been... Um, pushed under, let's say, um, by the current environment. Is it happening or is it just that we're not seeing it? I don't think it's happening. I mean, I think the, you know, Victor's right in the sort of 2000s, I think there was a bit of experimentation in the 1990s, you know, with the sort of organic law on village elections in, I think, 1997. 
uh, township congresses. There were elections at some of those, even in Shenzhen. I think there was going to be elections in the mid-2000s for some party positions, though it never happened. But this is just not happening under Xi Jinping. I think there's been village elections, you know, kind of uh, lately. But someone once said um, airport security was the world's largest mass act of theatre because, of course, it has no real meaning. I think actually it's been beaten. You know, village elections in China are the world's largest mass act of theatre. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's kind of quite impressive to see the amount of theatricality about it, but they have no... In fact, I think they've been revised now so that you all have to be party members to go into these. So even that kind of uh, liberalisation in the past of non-party members being allowed to participate has gone. Kerry, can I press you to elaborate on that, which is just the impact, the, the Xi Jinping impact on, on the party since he's come into power? Well, I mean, I think the, the Communist Party of China, in my understanding, it sort of has the attributes of a faith community. And I see Xi Jinping as this sort of, you know, like a sort of faith leader, you know. I, I mean, it's more about the kind of um, rituals that he takes part in. And I'm not sure that he is an individual figures in this. I mean, people talk about autocratic, you know, very sort of centralised. But I think there's a lot of external reasons why the Communist Party today under him is the way it is. You know, the fact that it's got this enormous economy that can be kind of politicised, you know, and has enormous power in the outside world. The fact that, you know, China was in with grasp of modernity with Chinese characteristics, which also means modernity in, in the countryside. You know, the fact that there's this sort of centenary celebration this year. So these narratives that the party has very effectively colonised, you know, and taken over of it having, you know, a sort of role in delivering a powerful, strong country, but also a sort of moral narrative that, you know, the party has taken of this being China's rightful outcome after a modern history of suffering and victimization. I mean, all of those are very powerful things that not really relate to a particular individual. Most you could say is that um, Xi Jinping has been effective at kind of, you know, coordinating this and has used the charisma and possibilities of his position. So I think as a communist leader in China, he has been very, very effective. But I don't think it would be very sensible to sort of look at him as some kind of, you know, kind of all-powerful figure that, that you know, I mean, he is a lucky guy. I mean, even with this pandemic, he has had so much luck because it's all kind of worked out okay. And what Chinese leader in modern times has been given the gift of a president like the one that has just been booted out of the United States. I mean, you know, every day there was a harvest. It's a bit tougher now, as we saw in Alaska yesterday, or, you know, like uh, on, on, in the middle of March, uh, it's a bit tougher. But I think still, he's, his luck has held. But maybe not always, right? Maybe not always. So, Kerry, you seem to be portraying Xi as, you know, right time, right place, right? And maybe not so much of it is down to his, you know, influence as a charismatic individual himself. Is that is that right? He's, he's part, of a, part of a cog as well. Yeah, I, mean, I tell you, Cindy, if it was you or me re- ruling China at the moment, we'd be in the same position. We would be coasting the line. Abolishing... Victor too. I'd make Victor my Li Keqiang. I'd make him my Li Keqiang. Uh... I mean, I had to have a big laugh. I had to have a big... One of the last areas... Victor will really find this very, very amusing. One of the last areas that we thought the Premier dealt with in China was EU-China relations, right? It was the last little area that, you know, little little project for Lee. 
And now <laughs> we see, you know, about uh, two or three months ago, Xi Jinping is in charge of the EU-China relationship. So, you know, I think, I don't know, Li Keqiang is, I think, just, well, who knows? that, that, that It might have something to do with Merkel, Merkel's impending uh, departure. Yeah, yeah. Because they had this really special rapport. It's like, well, now that she's stepping down, we don't need you anymore. It's true. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on, Kerry, can I just bring you back on this point? Because, you know... Me or you in in Zhonghe in Beijing, would we necessarily abolish term limits? Would we necessarily be interning Uyghurs in Xinjiang? You know, there's clearly things that, or, or, or the more aggressive rhetoric towards Taiwan and Hong Kong, indeed, there are clearly things that President Xi believes in. Maybe other people around him believe in it too, but he is an active player in this, and and he he himself has changed the fate of China in a way that his predecessors haven't done and might not do in a similar situation. Oh, no, I don't deny I mean, of course, there are things that he has invested his political capital in, as any leader would. But, I mean, if I was in his position, I would protect myself because it's a very exposed position. I mean, I would probably, you know, kind of want a load of people around me aren't going to stab me in the back because the Communist Party's history in this is not super great. And I would obviously understand that it's a game of the highest possible stakes. I mean, there's no second axe in Chinese politics, apart from Deng Xiaoping, who is the you know exception that proves the rule. I mean, it's a very deadly game. So I think, you know, it, someone said in Tudor Britain 500 years ago, uh, there were few players and the stakes were high and the rewards were high. Well, it's the same in China today. The stakes are high, the rewards are high. It's not for the faint, you know, faint of heart. I, I think anyone would act the way that he has won. He has acted I'm not saying that's right, but that's the political reality. Victor? Yeah, so I, I would add to that, and, and I completely agree with uh, Kerry's analysis, is that the, the stakes are very high. But but when the stakes in the game is so high, there are two possible responses. One is the Hu Jintao response, which is you share power so thoroughly that people don't have an incentive to unseat you from power. It's like, well, you know, if you give all this power to Zhou Kang already, he already you know, owns, you know, half of China, he doesn't need to launch a coup against you because he's so powerful already. But clearly that was not Xi Jinping's approach, right? So the uh, the other response to this kind of autocratic temptation is that you have to destroy all of your enemies so that you can make sure that they can never challenge your power. So instead of the power sharing equilibrium, you know, we, we uh, call this, uh, I do a bit of game theory, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> I don't care, we'll, we'll say that's an unfortunate thing, maybe, I don't know. This is a very academic um, episode. <laughs> yeah, no, so in, instead of this power sharing equilibrium, you have this dominance equilibrium. And I think that is a choice, you know, so Xi Jinping, when he first took power, he could have gone down the power sharing road. But he clearly did not want to because of a lot of the ills that he saw in China at the time, you know, pervasive corruption, inability to get major policies through, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing I think that's fairly unique to Xi Jinping or fairly unique to the princelings like Xi Jinping is this still deeply held belief in the power of ideology and the power of the party to mobilize the entire country. Right. Someone who was not raised in this environment, you know, steeped in party ideology, steeped in uh, organizational life uh, in the party might not have relied on those tools so thoroughly in the way that Xi Jinping has relied on, you know, all the practices from the Mao period are now back, you know, study sessions, self-criticism, 
you know, uh, reporting now increasingly in some universities, when you submit articles to English journals, you have to, you know, vet it through a party committee. Uh, these are things in the Mao period, and, and a lot of that is back. And, and I attribute that to Xi Jinping. You you mentioned that he's a princeling, and listeners might not know, but princelings basically means you know they come from a communist party family background. See, for example, his father was a senior communist official who fell during the Cultural Revolution. Victor, are you saying that because of his upbringing, with steeped within the party, he's bringing that back because it seems what's normal or f- effective for him? Yeah, f- effective. Yeah, so yeah. he really believes in these tools. But I don't think the model, you know, a lot of sort of people are comparing it with the Cultural Revolution. That is not the comparison. The comparison is with the Four Cleans, which uh, preceded the Cultural Revolution. And that was a huge kind of anti-corruption movement launched by Liu Shaoqi, mainly uh, sending out a lot of work teams, you know, investigating local cadres, getting the local communities to study Marxism, listening to lectures on Marxism. Uh, that's more analogous to what's happening today. And Victor, do you think that that approach you've painted of his to eradicate all enemies, has that worked for him? Has he managed to eradicate enemies? Or are they just lurking in the background, waiting for, for a moment, a slip up? No, they're gone. So uh, you, I have this data on the share of Central Committee, or the number of Central Committee members who used to work with Hu Jintao. And that's kind of my measure of, you know, being in Hu Jintao's faction. Prior to the 19th Party Congress, there were kind of over 20 of them. I don't remember the exact number, but by the 19th Party Congress, it fell to five. And so even at the provincial level, a lot of those people are gone. I mean, before retirement age, and it's not due to retirement age, many of them were pretty young. What about new factions, people who just want to unseat him? They want it for him, for themselves. They want this high stake, high reward game. Kerry? Well, I think the great legalist Han Fei, uh, 2,500 years ago, said... It's easy to deal with enemies, but the ones that bring you calamity are your friends. <laughs> and I think, you know, it, it's in this system, you, you know, like in, in American politics, probably, uh, you know, friendship is just for today and alliances are just for today. Now, I, I mean, I think there's circumstantial evidence over the last three or four years that, uh, you know, at times Xi Jinping has maybe been isolated. I mean, there was the moment a year ago when the pandemic struck and he kind of disappeared for 10 days. And well, who knows what happens over those times, but they show a sort of, you know, kind of slight wobbling. And then, of course, things carried on uh, successfully and normally. And today he looks, you know, as strong as ever. But, you know, you've got to remember that this is a system where, you know, you're only as good as your last success, like in any political system there. I think it's the same. And if there is a major downturn in the economy, which is sustained, or if there are other huge problems, if the American relationship really goes badly, I mean, it's not great at the moment, but it really, really goes badly. Well, then your friends start to become a little less friendly. And, you know, this is a system where it's not easy. I mean, it's extremely difficult to remove someone like Shia, for sure. But, you know, it's it's not impossible. Uh, I mean, in the sense he's not, in that sense, like Mao Zedong. I think Mao Zedong viably could have created a counterinsurgency. I mean, you know, and that was his threat, wasn't it, in the Cultural Revolution? I'm going to, you know, basically set up my own, you know, and take on the party I created. I mean, Xi Jinping, I think, would not be able to do that, but it would be, you know, it would be extremely disruptive, but not impossible for people to start thinking he's not doing what he could do. 
At the moment, though, he looks pretty entrenched and pretty strong. So I completely agree with what Kerry just said. You know, it would take a you know major disaster for anything to change. I would add one additional layer of complexity in today's politics, which is the high tech surveillance.、Um, so if you think that ordinary Chinese are being you know highly Monitored by the party. Think about a Politburo member. I mean, I would bet you that every little move, action, speech that they engage in is recorded by something, is analyzed by something. But the problem is that ultimately, this kind of monitoring, even if it's very, high, especially because it's so high tech, is delegated to you know companies or different departments in you know different agencies. I don't even know what agencies would be, and ultimately. You know whether Xi Jinping trusts all the individuals who are involved in this elite monitoring process is very important, right? So, what if one agency is not reporting all the actions of you know his potential rivals to Xi Jinping himself? So there's there's this kind of very complex game, which you know. So in the history of the party, Yang Shangkun got into big trouble for doing exactly that. You know, recording Chairman Mao, not telling him about it. He was purged for that ultimately, and I think things like that will become more common actually. And the final thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, we're coming up to there's a hundred year anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. It's going to be a big deal within China, not least because the CCP will use it to mark their legitimacy. Do you think that、um, the the party looking ahead can last for another, say, half a century? Well, I mean, I have a I'll make a fool of myself first of all.、Um, I mean, we're not going to be here in fifty years, is it? <laughs> no, I, I won't. I think you will, Cindy. You'll definitely live with the consequences of this. I am、um, having seen the track record of people predicting over the last thirty years I, of China. I mean, we've all consistently been wrong. Well, I, I'm certainly been wrong. I mean, in the nineteen nineties, it wasn't going to be. You know, Hu Jintao was going to be the sort of closet liberal. Well, okay,、um, and and that didn't really happen. And I think with Xi Jinping, even with lower expectations, I mean, it's it's been. Amazing how he has kind of centralised and consolidated things. So I would pray, probably say that yes, I think it can last another fifty years. I think it could、uh, go on forever, really. But I would also be typically academic and say, but if it goes, it's going to go brutally and quickly. I mean, I I don't think there's going to be you know like a nice little segue. I think that's the problem that the Communist Party is not able to find a way of. Making one-party rule sustainable by doing the soft stuff, you know, and then kind of having meaningless political parties, but also political parties that might kind of figure a little bit, you know, more than the ones that exist at the moment, which have no meaning at all. I think there's no soft route for it. It's all or nothing, and if it's all, it will have it all, and if it's nothing, I think it will be, you know, a catastrophic kind of going. I don't think there's going to be a midway. Victor. Uh, yeah, I yeah I agree with that、uh, broadly speaking I I think yeah I'm not going to make a prediction but I think that there will be a major challenge in the next fifty years、uh, unless there is major medical breakthrough that allows Xi Jinping to live for another fifty years which <laughs> which you know maybe who knows you know some kind of new gene therapy who knows right、uh, but if that was not possible I think there will be you know. Pretty major disruption around the time of his death, and unlike、uh, the end of the Mao period, there will not be these、uh, revolutionary veterans、uh, with a pretty broad networks across the party who can step into power to fill this vacuum, so to speak. You will have a bunch of because you know I just finished writing a book about this topic in the late Mao period.、Uh, basically, the older you are as a dictator about to die. 
the more incentive you have to to promote really inexperienced, really powerless individuals uh, in the higher echelon of the party because they can't challenge your power. Uh, so I, I suspect Xi Jinping will do the same thing as he gets sicker and as his cognition sort of fails. But then that sets up the conditions for a regime collapse, basically. Uh, but that's not to say that the regime cannot survive it. You know, obviously the regime survived that in 1976, but that's because there were all these Laoguming, the veteran revolutionaries who were still around to take uh, high level positions like Deng Xiaoping and Ye Jianying and so on and so forth. This will not be the case when Xi Jinping passes away. Well, that's a terrifying thought to end on. Victor Xi and Kerry Brown, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.